We are in Matthew chapter 23 this morning. So we're in a section, as you guys remember, um, we, were, we talked about in Exodus chapter 12, there, there was a season where the Lamb of God or the Lamb that was brought into the temple was to be inspected. You remember it was, it was presented according to the law of Moses at, at Passover time on the 10th of Nisan. But on, from the 10th of Nisan to the 14th of Nisan, the Lamb was not to be killed. It was to be what? inspected and it was to be um, overlooked that it had no blemishes no flaws nothing and the priests would observe it and watch it and make sure that, that on initial inspection they didn't miss anything Jesus rode into Jerusalem triumphantly on a donkey on the 10th of Nisan at Passover and for five days until the 14th he was being inspected and that's where we've been as a church for the last three weeks um, four weeks we've been studying this period between the Sunday what we call Palm Sunday to the Sunday which we're we're quickly coming to, which is Resurrection Sunday. And this entire part, starting in in chapter 21 of Matthew to the very end, chronicles, details the last seven days of Jesus' life. So where we are in 23 is we've probably come to about Thursday now, and and the, the inspection period is over. And, and Jesus has passed all the inspections, and, and like Pontius Pilate finally figured out, I find what? No fault in this man, that Jesus was found without fault and without blemish and spot. And, and we get to a place in the gospel and really in the Jesus' ministry of preaching and teaching that, that seems to me that it's a, it's a shift in, in the way that Jesus um, often did things. And Jesus is going to um, turn this all back. And, and you guys remember, who, who has been inspecting Jesus for the last four days? The Pharisees? Who else? The Sadducees, the, the Zealots, all these groups that were there and, and, and common in Israel at the time all took turns with questions and inquiries and, and traps and trying to get Jesus as they were inspecting him. And now Jesus is going to return and he's going to begin to talk um, no holds barred, gloves off with the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And he's going to call them brood of vipers and snakes and basically he's going to tell them they're going to hell. You don't believe me? Look at verse 33. He says, serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Now, now in ministry and in life, you know, um, th- those that are Christ followers, I think that we fall into a couple different categories maybe. And, um, you know, I try to be careful that when I, when I present what I'm about to present to you, that it's, it's not done in a way that I'm judging anybody else's um, style or opinion and, and not presenting that, that mine is better than theirs. I don't believe that. I believe that I just have to be true to the call that God has given me and the heart that God has given me. But what I'm talking about is the way that people present the gospel of Jesus Christ. I seen a guy holding up a sign that said, God hates faggots. And I promise you, Jesus wouldn't act that way. And, and, and then, I stole that from Andy Minio, if any of you guys are rap fans, right? So we have at times, you know, we've seen him. I've actually seen him in Tooele and in other places and certain groups, that, they're Christian groups that stand on corners and, and they hold signs that say, turn or burn, it's hell without Jesus. And oftentimes they'll have a microphone, a megaphone, and, you know, as you're driving down the street, they're preaching the gospel as you go by. But usually the message is the same. It, you know, you're an adulterer and a sinner and a liar and a heathen and you're going to hell if you turn or burn. Just by show of hands real quick. Has anybody ever seen those guys? A couple of you? Anybody not? Never seen nothing? Nobody standing on the corner yelling at you, telling you you're going to hell? And then inviting you to come to their church? <laughs> well, it happens. 
And again, I'm very careful. I want to be honest. I'm not judging them. I'm not saying that they're, they're, they're doing it wrong. That's just not who I am. And then on another corner in town, when these guys are standing on the corner with megaphones telling you you're going to hell, there's another group of Christians that stand on this other corner. And what they do is, is they say, we love you no matter what. God is just a God of love, and it doesn't matter what you do and who you are. Just come and be a part, and, you know, y- you can deal with your sin if you want or don't have to. It's not a big deal. You, you just, God just loves you, and if, if, if you just are who you are, you're good, you, God's going to understand. If you're a good person, God's going to, to, to know that. Is that true? No, it's not true. Now, how about over here? These guys on this other corner. If you don't, they're screaming at you. If you don't know Jesus, you're going to hell. Is that true? Absolutely. That's the truth. And I'm here to tell you, and Jesus is going to tell you here in this chapter that if you don't know Jesus and you you don't have Jesus in your heart and, and your sins are not forgiven and washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, you are going to go to hell. And that's just the truth. I couldn't, I couldn't, I wouldn't love you if I didn't tell you that. But. Which, which camp, the guys that just tell you, don't worry about any of that, whoop, good one, don't worry about any of that, and, and everything's okay, just come as you are, stay as you are, and God's going to love you no matter what. All love, no truth. Because that's not the truth. Jesus said, and I told the men, we taught them in the other day, Jesus said, the cost of becoming a disciple is everything. And Jesus said, you have to forsake all. What does all mean in the Greek? All. all. And if Jesus said, you have to forsake all if you want to be my disciple, that means there's a cost of being a Christ follower. There's a cost of discipleship. You can't come to Jesus and, and not put anything into it and, not, and just be who you are and stay who you are and live your life exactly the way you are. Now, I don't want to scare you with that because, listen, what happens naturally is you come to Jesus and you start falling in love with Jesus. You don't have to worry about, oh, man, I like these things about myself and I don't want God to change that. Listen, you don't got to worry about that. You just start falling in love with Jesus and you become a different person. You just don't want to do those things anymore because you're in love with Jesus. Now, now again, on this corner, it's all love and no truth. On the other corner over here, the megaphone guys, it's all truth and what? And no love. And and neither one, I think, are, are where I want to be because Jesus said, speak the truth in love. I said, Jesus said that actually technically Paul said that, but isn't Jesus the word of God? So when I misquote and I say Jesus said when Paul actually wrote it, I'm still in good shape, right? Because actually Jesus, Jesus did write the Bible, right? He is the word of God. So Jesus said, speak the truth in love. And so I want to speak the truth in love. When I first came to Utah, um, Lydia and I started a Bible study in our home on a Wednesday night. And um, some friends that were coming, they were faithful, they were Christians, they were people we met at Calvary Chapel Salt Lake. They had a really good friend that came, and he was, he was LDS, he was still LDS, he was involved with the LDS church, and he liked this family, and he, he, liked, he liked the little Bible study we were doing. And he had been coming for a couple of weeks, and, and in the middle of that, I, um, I was teaching about um, the garments, and we were covering a section about garments and, um, and the biblical aspect of garments, and I, I made fun of, of the LDS's version of the garments and something they were doing, and I said something that was derogatory. And I hurt his feelings, and he never came back. And it broke my heart, because I was wrong. And I, you know, by the grace of God, I ran into him about three months later. I said, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have said that. That was not right. Will you, will you forgive me? And I needlessly offended him for something that was so stupid. You know what? I'm going to speak the truth in love. And I, can, I have every right, and I don't care who you are or where you are. I'm going to tell you what the Word of God says. 
But, but I want to do it in a way, me personally, I want to do it in a way that I don't need to be needlessly offensive, right? So I was needlessly offensive. I, I could have taught about garments. I could have taught about why there's inconsistencies and what the LDS church teaches about garments without making fun of people who wear them and without making fun of this gentleman and, and his family and everything else. And I learned a lesson in Utah. I'm not going to be successful in ministry here if I'm bashing or I'm doing something that's perceived as bashing. Now, I, I can just be honest, listen, in my heart, and somebody, which we get visitors all the time, somebody can come and hear me say something and in their mind think, oh, he's bashing. But I don't, I'm not, I don't trip on that. Because if I'm just teaching the truth and they got offended, then I, I'm not hurt. I'm not hurt like I was with this guy because I was wrong. I did say something that was derogatory and needlessly offensive. You know what the truth is? Homosexuality is a sin. And, 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 and that's just the truth. And people don't like that. And they say, oh, you're a hater and you're a monger. Well, that's not me. I, I, don't, I don't write the news. I just deliver it. You know, I, and so, but, but there is a way that I can tell anybody who has people in their life that are homosexual cousins. Because you know what happens? Many people have a sister, a brother, a cousin, somebody they just love dearly and they don't want to believe that that person is living in, in a sin that leads to condemnation in their heart because they know that person, they love that person. But, but, you know, just as much as homosexuality is a sin, if you're having any sex outside of marriage, you're living in sin. If you're, if you're a, a heterosexual man and you're cheating on your wife, you're, you're guilty of the same sin. And, and, but here's what I want to share. I, I want to share. I want to I preach. I want to be that. Listen, sex outside of sin. Sex outside of sin? <laughs> sex outside of marriage is sin. But... but I love the person. The person is welcome. And eventually God's going to speak that to their heart. Just like divorce. You know what Jesus, you know what the Bible says? God hates divorce. And every time I preach that, I don't ever want to send a message that if you've been divorced, that God hates you. That's not what the Bible says. God hates divorce and he loves the people that have been divorced. He's madly in love with the people that have been divorced. And he restores them. And guess what he doesn't remember about you? That you were divorced. He doesn't even remember. Stop reminding him because he forgot. He chose to take that and throw it into the sea of forgetfulness a long time ago. And so in, in God's love, finding a way to, again, speak the truth in love. So I can say to, you know, somebody who, that, that, that God absolutely loves all, all those categories that I just described. And God cares. But the truth is, if you continue in unrepentant sin in those areas of your life, You know, the Bible says seven times in the New Testament, seven times in the New Testament, in length, in detail, you will not inherit the kingdom of God, right? So again, I got to tell you the truth and I want to do it in love. I want to do it in love. I don't know how well I do, but but I want to tell you those things in love. And so Jesus here, he's going to give them the hard message, the hard um, topic that it's time to talk about. Now, now, in this, this chapter, um, he's talking to, to Sadducees and Pharisees. But listen, Jesus' heart, right, is always for what? What is Jesus' end game for every one of us? For every person that's in the list of those that are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. What is his heart? There was a guy in the church in Corinth. And his dad got a divorce and remarried. And his stepmom was in the house, and this young man, maybe a teenager, late teenager, maybe a young man in his 20s or whatever, he starts having an affair and sleeping with his dad's new wife. That's not good enough. 
Then he comes to church in the Corinthian church. And, and when the pastor's greeting everybody and he's standing in the front and he's telling everybody that's coming through what he's doing because he's proud of himself and he thinks he's cool. And he's bragging about this sin. And Paul gets word of it. And Paul says, what in the world is going on in your church? And, and he, 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 he tells them that they got to kick that guy out of church and they got to turn that guy over to Satan. And it's a hard scripture. It's a hard, it's a hard section to understand. But this guy is, is, is repentant. There might be a guy in a chair right next to him who did the same exact sin. And he's welcome in church. He's not kicked out of church. He's welcome because he, he's repentant. He's not doing it anymore. He's, he's, he's forgiven. He's, he's redeemed. He's washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. When God sees him because his heart is broken, he, he doesn't see that sin anymore. And, and the same sin, but a different heart. And God looks at them both different. And so the church takes the advice of Paul and they tell this guy, hey, what you're doing is wrong. It's sin. You, and you can't come to church bragging about it and you're unrepentant and you got to go. You're outside the church. And then eventually that guy goes out and he's, and he's turned the term the Bible uses is Paul tells him to turn him over to Satan. We find that one other place in the Bible. But listen, listen, listen. The whole heart, the whole, um, the heart of God is for restoration. Somebody say Amen. The heart of God is to see people restored and made whole and loved and forgiven and redeemed and, 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 and brought into the protection and the umbrella of, of a God who says, you know, that he, he, he is the, uh, the, the chicken who wanted to hold the chicks under his wing and protect them and love them and care for them and be the umbrella over your life. And then eventually, you know what happened to that guy? You know what Paul said about the same guy? It's a pretty egregious sin, Right? And the guy said, Paul says later in the, in, in the story, the guy repented, got his life right. And Paul says, bring that guy back. Bring him back and welcome him and love him. And, you know, he's repentant. He's good with God. But it took that necessary, that kind of hard line with that particular individual to send him out in order for God to bring him back. But God's heart all along for all of us is, is restoration. And God's heart for the Pharisees in this chapter is for restoration and love. And he's going to take a real hard line. But, but again, this is the last 48 hours of Jesus' life. Do you know how Jesus chose to minister to these same Pharisees for the last three years? Anybody? He what? No, he didn't avoid them. He would have liked to, but they were there. All every day, every step of the way, they were there. He, he loved them. He loved them. He loved them. He gave them grace and mercy. Can you guys think of a famous Pharisee? Sadducee in the Bible, that in the New Testament, that got saved? Nicodemus. Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, the greatest verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, Nicodemus, but have everlasting life. Do you realize in John chapter 3, Jesus was speaking directly to Nicodemus? We have it recorded and we know John three sixteen, but half of us don't even know who Jesus was talking to that day. Jesus was talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a ruler of the Jews. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, God loves you so crazy much. And if you come to God, God gave his son for you, Nicodemus. And what happened to Nicodemus, this Pharisee, in John chapter 3? He gets saved. His life gets radically changed. And for three years, Jesus gives this message and they won't receive it. And there's a group that, and lots of Nicodemus, we have his story, but there was more Nicodemuses that the Bible doesn't record that got saved. Other Pharisees got saved through this period. But now we come to the end and these hard-hearted people 
will not receive. And Jesus is going to, um, he's just going to tell them the truth in love. Let's look at verse one. It says that was the short introduction. <laughs> Normally we got like 10 minutes left when I'm done with my intro. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and his disciples saying, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works. For they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move one finger to lift them. Somebody say the seat of Moses. Jesus said many times in the, in the gospel of Matthew specifically, do not be like the, anybody? The Sadducees and the Pharisees. So if Jesus said, do not be like the Sadducees and the Pharisees, what do you not want to be like? Pretty simple, right? Clear as mud. So Jesus here is then going to tell us and give us an example of, of the Pharisees and who they were and what they were and that we, we definitely don't want to be like them. And the first thing he says in verse 2 is that they, they put themselves in the seat of Moses. So your newer translations render that a little, a little easier to understand. And actually what the Greek says is that they placed themselves in the seat of Moses. I'll tell you, there's nothing, you know, more, there's nothing, you know, worse than a, a self-appointed holy man a self-appointed leader, you know, you ever run a job site and somebody says, I'm the boss around here. And I'm like, well, if you got to say that, you're probably not the boss, right? You know, like, and, and when you got to self-proclaim who you are and what you are, you're probably not, you know? So the Pharisees, Jesus said, had, had self-appointed themselves into the seat of Moses. Now, um, I, I do want to unpack that. I think it's super important for us to understand that it's something, it's a concept um, that we've been talking about as a church for months now. Okay, so, um, but let, let's do it one more time just quickly. So again, I want everybody to say the Moses model. And I want you to have an understanding, a grasp, a concept of what the Moses model is. So what the Moses model is in the skinny is that um, Moses was a go-between between God and the people. That's the function of the priest according to the law of Moses. The, 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 the function of a priest um, or leader or holy man was that the people would come and talk to the priest or talk to Moses. And then Moses would hear what the people said and he'd go say, hey, God, the people are saying this. And then God would say to Moses, hey, we'll go tell the people I respond with this answer. And then Moses would go back and talk to the people, right? That, that was the God-prescribed model for the priests that started with Moses. We call it the Moses model. When, when, when Moses went up onto the Mount um, Sinai to receive the law of God, who went with Moses? Nobody. What did God say? Do you remember? God said, if, he said, hey, Moses, make sure everybody stands back. And he said, if there's animals, if there's goats, if there's rabbits, if there's gophers, if there's anything on the mountain, when I show up, they're all going to die. Only Moses is allowed to go up on the mountain. And he went up and he spent time with God on the mountain. He came down and his face shone. Well, eventually Moses dies. And this same function of the Moses model continued through human history. It's continued to today and it's plagued the church since Jesus rose from the grave. Because the Moses model was ordained and prescribed by God for a season and that season is over. And so um, no longer do we live under the Moses model, right? What changed? Jesus. Jesus is always the right answer in church. <laughs> Jesus dies on a cross. The veil of the temple rents from the top to bottom. 
And now we're all welcome to go into the Holy of Holies anytime we want. Before Jesus died on the cross, from Moses to the time that Jesus died on the cross, how many people went into the Holy of Holies? And what happened in the Holy of Holies? Jesus actually mentions it, coincidentally enough, in this chapter, in verse 21 of chapter 23. Jesus says, he who swears by the temple swears by it, and him who dwells in it. Who's him who dwells in the temple? God, the presence of God, the Shekinah glory, we call it sometimes. That, that, that God resided himself in the Holy of Holies. And one priest, once a year, would go into the Holy of Holies, right? And he would meet with God, and then he would come out, and he would represent God to the people. Well, this Moses model, it, it, and, and these Pharisees, to their, you know, kind of credit a little bit, they, they lived under that their whole lives for thousands of years before them. It wasn't until about 48 hours later that this is all going to change. But I want to tell you today... We don't live under the Moses model anymore. Who do you guys need in your life? This is a question. Who do you guys need in your life, in the flesh, that would grant you access to God or better access to God? Who do you need? Nobody? You sure? Sure you don't need me? I, I know I got know God pretty good. I might be able to help you out. Maybe if you... Uh, if you tithe a little bit more, I could probably get, a, get God to talk to you a little better, you know. Or if, you know, you make me chocolate chip cookies, maybe I could, you know. But unfortunately, that's what's happened throughout human history is men have decided and learned. It's very true that, that if people believe that they need those men to gain access to God, that those men become very powerful. And, and, and that's what has happened and what is twisted and why God said, do not be like the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Do not develop that kind of religious system that Jesus died on a cross to break. Because you do not need anybody to gain better access to God. The veil of the temple rent from top to bottom radically inviting every one of you lousy sinners to come in. I love you all, and I'm a lousy sinner with you. And that's a radical, amazing thought. Because the high priest had to be somebody really, really holy and important and only got to go in once a year. And we miss it because we're 2,000 years later. But if you lived your whole life looking up to and needing this guy to give you access to God, and, and the high priest... The, the garb that the high priest would wear, you talk about gaudy, be covered in jewels and stones and headdresses and, you know, and all this fancy stuff. And, and he got to go in one time a year. And you wouldn't even get to get close to that. And this really important religious figure gets to go in and, and meet with God. And then Jesus dies on a cross and all of a sudden he says, he opens the doors and he goes out in the slums and the streets, wherever, and he finds the dirtiest, unworthiest people of all and he welcomes them all. He says, every one of you guys can come in every day, whenever you want. Praise God. You guys are either sleeping or missing, amen. I don't know. But the, so, so again, you know, I, I want to be careful and, and, I, and I believe I have a call of God I have a ministry. We all have a call. We all have a ministry. Each one is different. But, but, but the, you know, the way in our style and the way we do ministry here is that we never want to be guilty of drawing disciples unto ourselves. It's not about me. You don't need me. I, I'm, I'm here as an index finger. What we do for 45 minutes on a Sunday morning is a very small part of your Christian living and your Christian life. 
what you do the rest of your week is very important. And the access that you have to God throughout your week and throughout your life is, is as much access to God as anybody else. You don't need anybody. You have the Holy Spirit that lives in your heart. The Spirit of God, when Jesus died on the cross, Jesus said, it's better that I go because I'll send the helper. And for the first time in human history, a week later, 50 days later, um, the Holy Spirit came and lived permanently in the hearts and lives of men. And that's the dispensation that you live in today is where the Holy Spirit of God lives in your heart and your life. And you don't need anybody. Does that mean that, that we don't want anybody? No, no, no. Like we're, we're, we're a family. We're, we're supposed to be, um, you know, arms on shoulders and loving people and holding people up and picking people up and encouraging people. And there's gifts that the Bible says God has called some to be pastors and teachers and evangelists. And he's given gifts of helps and he's given gifts of administration. He's given gifts of generosity and words of prophecy and, and speaking in tongues and different um, functions in the body of Christ that we love each other, we come alongside each other, we, we support each other, we build each other up. Each person has a, a different function in the bodies. I look around the room, I see all of the gifting and function that everybody has, that, that, that we all need to come together to serve Christ, to reach our community with the love of Jesus. And none of our calls are more important than the other, more valuable than the other. They're all necessary. Amen? Amen. I better get going or we're never going to finish. I really want to finish. All right. Um, so that's the Moses model. And these Pharisees put themselves in the, in the seat of Moses, which means this really quickly, and then we are going to move on. Mo, they, they, they put themselves in a position to the people saying, you need me if you want access to God. And let me tell you, well, let me ask you, we find a couple times only in the New Testament where Jesus gets mad, where Jesus gets angry. Every time Jesus gets angry that's recorded in the Bible, it's for the same exact Reason. What's that reason? Keeping people from coming to Jesus. Keeping people from coming to Jesus. Every time that Jesus gets angry and it's recorded, he's angry because other people are keeping people from coming to God. And so the Pharisees, in their hypocrisy and in their system and in their their sitting in the seat of Moses, they were preventing people from coming to God. And let me tell you, that angers God. Jesus said it would be better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the deepest sea than you cause one of these little ones who love me to stumble. And so whenever we, we don't ever want to be guilty of this, this Phariseeism. Then in verse 3, he says, Therefore, whatever they tell you, oh, I read that, verse 5, but all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the border of their garments. What did Jesus say about the things you do when you do them with the motive to be seen by men? That's your reward, right? So if, let, let's say you, you make a donation um, to, to a charity in, in the Lord's name, and you give $5,000, and you just really want to do it anonymously because you just want it to bless the people. You're just doing it for the Lord. You don't want any credit for it. You just do it kind of quietly and anonymously. What if you take that same $5,000? Now, the, the one you did anonymously, and you did it because God told you to do it and called you, and you were obedient, and you couldn't afford it, you just did it anyways. Um, there's a reward for you for that in heaven. What if you took that same $5,000 and, and you waved it in the air like this and said, hey, everybody, I'm going to go give this charity over here $5,000 because I'm just that kind of Christian. What's, what's your reward? No reward. But what do you mean no reward? I, I gave $5,000. I get reward because I gave 5000 right? I get better reward if I gave 5000 than if I gave 4999 right? No, absolutely not. Jesus never bases the reward on the size of the gift. 
He never bases the reward on, on what you give. He bases the reward on the condition of your what? On your heart. Isn't that so amazing? Isn't that so cool? Like God just says, hey, I'll bless your heart. Like I'm, I care about your heart. I don't care what you give. That's why I tell you guys all the time, like, don't give in this church out of, out of necessity. Don't give out of obligation. God doesn't need your money. God has been so amazingly faithful. Listen, God lets us be a part. And, and I want you to get to the place where you give because the Bible says it's to your advantage to give. And it says for me as a, as a, as a pastor, teacher, to encourage those to give because it blesses their lives. But I don't ever want you to give out of obligation. Because until you can do it with a sincerity of heart, until you do it as unto the Lord and, and quietly just between you and God, God's not going to bless it anyways. So keep it. Go buy a Big Mac after church and enjoy that because that's all you're going to get for it. And then, and then he says in verse number um, 7, greetings in the marketplace. They love greetings in the marketplace and to be called men rabbi. Greet, uh, and then, but you do not be called rabbi for one of you is teacher the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teacher, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your? Somebody say, what? How about this? Somebody say, what are you talking about, Willis? Nobody? There you go. Um, so Jesus takes concepts, ideas that, that we think, and, and he turns them upside down. He turns them on their head because the world tells us that if you want to be great in the world, you have to be the boss of all. You have to climb the corporate ladder. You have to get people under you who, who, who work for you and serve you. And Jesus here takes that. And as we know, all the way through the Gospels, Jesus teaches for us as believers that if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you have to become a servant. And you have to serve. You have to serve. You have to love. And Jesus said that if you'll humble yourself, he's going to say here, let's go on and read it. He says in verse 12, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So, so Jesus said that if you're proud, that he's going, to, he's going to humble you. And he said, but if you'll humble yourself, then he'll exalt you. He'll lift you up. That means lift you up or bring you down. And so, so throughout, the Bible talks about there's a blessing, there's a gift in, in being humble and not full of pride and not a proud. And, you know, the, the, there's a little, which I'm not teaching on pride today, so I've got to be careful. But, um, you know, sometimes as Christians, somebody says, oh, I'm so proud of my son. They say, oh, you sinner, you're a Christian, you're not supposed to have pride. Shut up, you're stupid. I love my son and I'm so proud of him. That's not, that's not what we're talking about, right? When we talk about being, having pride and being proud. There's things as, as people we're proud of. That's different. It's different than the sin of pride. And, and coincidentally enough, the sin of pride biblically is the worst of them all. Because pride is the one that God identified that is the reason why Satan was kicked out of heaven. Because pride filled his heart and his sin. Satan's sin was pride. Now, it manifests in a lot of different ways, pride does, but, but pride is, is, is a core sin that leads to other things, and God deals with it. And as, as believers, God wants us to stay humble. I think, it, personally, I think it's interesting that several times in the New Testament, and here out of the words in red in Jesus' own mouth, the instruction to you and I is to humble ourselves. Not to say that God won't help you humble yourself. I always tell a funny story, but, you know, I prayed one time, God, humble me, and God, make me humble, and Dude, I had the worst three hours of my life. It was the most embarrassing, humiliating, humbling experience I ever had. I still, at night, sometimes I'll wake up in the middle of the night, oh, like that was such a bad, dramatic experience of, of being humbled and embarrassed like you can't believe. 
And after that, I just said, God, I'll never ask you to humble me again. I'll humble myself. Please don't humble me. I'll stay humble. I'll be humble. I'll humble myself. And don't you ever, you don't have to, you don't have to do it. And I believe it's a biblical stance because the Bible says, Jesus told us, the Bible says, humble yourself. Now, God can help you humble. You know, if I say, hey, God, I want, I want to be a person who's humble. And, and again, I'm not telling you guys what to pray for. If you guys want to ask for humility, try it. You know, <laughs> do it. Ask God to humble you. Or just go the easy route. Humble yourself. Stay humble. Be a humble beast. Amen? And then he says in verse 14, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. So that's the crux of it. We're about to go through in a, in a section here quickly. In the next eight minutes, it's cool. We got a minute per woe. There's eight woes. Eight minutes left in the sermon, and there's eight woes. So Jesus is going to give, woe is kind of a hard word to, to take from the Greek into the English. So it's translated here, woe. I, I don't know if it's beware, watch out, you're in trouble, um, idiot. You know, I don't know. It's, it's, not, it's not a good word, and it is a little hard to translate. But the very first woe is the result of what the Phariseeism does in, in our churches, in our lives, in our, in our religious systems. If we become a church that's guilty of, of the tendencies, the same tendencies that the Pharisees have, then Jesus would say woe to us as well. And it's something that as a church we want to be on our guard for. We don't want to be guilty of the, of, of the things the Pharisees did. And there's lots of things. And Jesus is going to identify eight of them here. If you want to for homework, when you get home today, you can read the Beatitudes. Anybody know how many Beatitudes there are? Eight. So eight and eight, eight for eight. And each of the Beatitudes kind of counteracts the eight woes that Jesus is going to give the, the Pharisees here in this chapter. And the first one is that basically what I talked about Jesus getting mad, they're keeping people from coming to Jesus. And then in verse 14, the second woe, or I'm sorry, in verse 14 is the first woe. Second woe, woe to you hypocrites and Pharisees, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, therefore you will receive greater condemnation. So they make these long prayers, but do they do it because they love God? Why do they do it? To be seen by men. They like the way that people make them, oh, you're so spiritual and so holy. You pray these long prayers. You ever been in a prayer meeting with somebody that prays that way? (laughs) You're like, ah, shut up. (laughs) Yeah, you know, and, 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 and you know, not, not to say we don't sometimes pray long, but it's, it's never a condition of the person and how long the prayer is. It's always a condition of, of the heart of the person. And if the person's just trying to show off and just be heard for their many words and it's, it's pretentious and fake, then, yeah, it's, it's kind of turn, it's not kind of, it's very turn-offish, you know. And, and even just as, as a courtesy when we get in a big group and pray, maybe it's part of the reason why prayer meetings died in the United States because we get together for the prayer, prayer meetings and, you know, the pastor wants to pray for two hours to show everybody how holy he is. And, you know, the interesting thing about prayer in the Bible is that most of the prayers recorded in the Bible were very short. Were very short, and just, just heartfelt, and just somebody crying out to God. And so these Pharisees would go, they would draw a crowd, they would pray long prayers, but... They weren't because they were sincere in their hearts. And then he said in verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are yourselves. Does that sound familiar? That's all I'm going to say about that. In verse 16, it says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obligated to perform it. Fools and blind, 
Again, the word fools is maybe in, in our um, English is still a fool, but, but it's, it's, a little, it's a little more lighthearted, maybe the way we use it, because my wife calls me fool all the time. She says, shut up, fool. And it's in a different way, and it's in a different light. This is, this is a very strong word that Jesus is using here. Hypocrite, fool maybe would be more equivalent today of idiot. You know, it's a stronger, harsher word, you idiot. You know, hopefully we don't use that word, but that's, that's what Jesus is saying here. You, you fools, you, you blind, for which is greater, the gold of the temple or that, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold. And whoever swears by the altar is nothing, but whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obligated to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctified it? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and him who dwells in the temple. So basically what was happening is the Pharisees were lying. They were, they were having falsehood. They were, you know, like, like a, you know, any of you guys ever cross your fingers? I promise, I promise, babe, I took out the trash. I was lying. I had my fingers crossed. I didn't really take out the trash. You know, my toes were crossed. Or, you know, we do these things where we, we think that we, you know, we, we can tell a lie and then we can cover it because we had our fingers crossed or we did something silly. That's what the Pharisees were doing. They, they, somebody would say, oh, you swore. You swore by the temple that you would do that. And they'd say, well, I didn't swear by the gold of the temple because the gold of the temple is what's valuable. So it's this kitty lame game that the, that the Pharisees would play basically to be dishonest. And Jesus is calling them on. He's telling them, he's just showing them that it's foolish and they're, they're being dishonest and, and falsehoods. And that just be honest. He said, let your yes be yes, your no be no in another place. And then he, he fills them in on even this little hypocrisy game they're playing. And then he says in verse 22, and he who, or, he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. So what, what did Jesus tell us quickly about, about swearing anyway? Swearing, I swear to God. He said, don't do it, right? So we can just put that whole thing to rest. That's something to the Pharisees that we don't have to deal with. We don't want to be like the Pharisees. Jesus said, don't swear. So if you're a person who, in order to convince somebody that's telling the truth, say, I swear to God or I swear to whatever, just cut it out. Just be a person who tells the truth 100% of the time, and eventually people will believe you because they know that you're a person of integrity and you tell the truth, and then you don't have to swear. And then Jesus said in verse 22, or verse 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise, cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. I'll just point out that Jesus said on the, that they pay tithe of the mints and cumins is something he said they ought to have done. But this is not a teaching on tithing. It has nothing to do with that. It's a teaching on their hypocrisy and their inconsistency. And their inconsistency was that they, they had these little gardens that would grow mints and, and, and seeds. And they would meticulously, the Pharisees would, would count out. And they would go through this little patch of seeds. And they would tear the leaves off. And they would say, nine for me and one for the Lord. And they would pay tithe, a 10% on, on their mints and their cumins. And then they would go out and hate a brother or go out and be evil or go out and not be kind and nice. And Jesus says, you, 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 you're inconsistencies is hypocrisy. And listen, we don't want to be guilty of that as believers. 
You, you don't get to, you know, oh, well, I, I, I give more in the church than anybody else. Oh, I serve more in the church than anybody else. And, and, and since I do that, I can, I can be nasty at work. I can hate a brother. I can say mean things. I have a license to be rude because I, I do these other things for God. And he points out, again, the inconsistency in the heart of the Pharisees. And God's not interested in the, in the tithe, in the tenth. He's not interested in, in those things if that's how you think you relate to God. Now, don't miss that sentence. God is not interested in those things if you think that's how you relate to God. That's not how you relate to God. What does God care about? Your money? He cares about your heart. Is your money tied to your heart? Yeah. So he encourages you, gives you some ideas about it. But ultimately, he's interested in your heart. He's interested in you being a kind person. He's interested in, in the weightier matters of the law, which is love and mercy and justice and, and kindness. And so he's pointing out a, another inconsistency of the Pharisees. And, and all of this they did so that they can be seen by men. Now, whenever you want a title, which the Pharisees loved a title, they loved the prominent seats. It's always dangerous. We're always aware in ministry when somebody comes along in our church and our ministry and they've been serving and, and they're very serious and they're very adamant about wanting a title. It's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. And it's always your red flag. It's always your red flag. First of all, the Bible says, do not lay hands on no man too quickly, which means we don't want to give titles and, and, and positions to people that, you know, we have to then take them away from them later. You know, if you never give it to them, it's easy. You don't have to take it away. But when somebody wants a title, if you're a person that, you know, that title is important, it's probably a condition of the heart that God's dealing with here and, and be careful of that. And then he says, blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. So basically in, in the law of Moses, the, uh, the smallest unclean animal and the largest unclean animal, smallest was a gnat, the largest was a camel. So they literally would strain out a gnat because a gnat was an unclean insect. Now, the reason why that has to be defined is because there were insects that were clean. You remember John the Baptist? He ate locusts. Those were clean. According to the law of Moses, you're allowed to eat certain bugs. Any of you guys ever eat bugs? No? You haven't lived until you've eaten some bugs. You guys need to get a motorcycle and drive with your mouth open or something or... I don't know. I don't know. It was probably everywhere, but I know for a minute, like when you went to like um, Maverick or something on the counter, they'd have these little boxes of flavored bugs and it was kind of like a nobody, no? He's tried those moss. Well, anyways, the, the Pharisees would, would strain, they would take a, a, she, a, you know, a screen and they would pour their liquids through it in case a gnat accidentally, which was an unclean animal, got on top of it. And Jesus, again, is pointing out their hypocrisy that you strain out a gnat, but in the same time, you, you miss the, the heart of God. You miss what God wants to, what is really concerned about in your life. And that's what religion does, you guys right? That's what all religion does. We don't want to be, you know, I tell people all the time, I hate religion and I try to use it for shock value. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't to hear the pastor say he hates religion, but I mean it with all my heart. I hate religion. Religion is the biggest enemy of the gospel. Jesus is not concerned. God is not religious. He's not a, he's, he's relationship. He's love. He's mercy. He's grace. He's kindness and goodness. And, 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 and and he, he's turned off by our, our, our attempts to please him with, with religion as the Pharisees were so guilty of. And so verse 26, he says, um, I know we're jamming, guys. I'm trying to cheat and you're catching me. 25, you missed 25. Shh, shh. Be quiet. Verse 20, 28 says, 
Even so, also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. He kind of brings it to the focus before the last woe. So again, um, if you want to outwardly appear righteous, now listen, I'm going to say this. I don't think it's bad to outwardly appear Christian, right? To outwardly appear as, as, as someone who loves God. That's not what, it, what, what Jesus is concerned about. Because what happens if we get this message twisted and you think that, um, you know, you're not supposed to outwardly look Christian or religious, then we, we end up with lots of Christians. This happens and, you know, they walk around like this. And you say, oh, thank you, brother. And they say, it wasn't me. It was the Lord. You're like, can't you just say you're welcome? You know, like, and, and this false humility uh, of about, of, of, that, that happens as a result of us not wanting to um, offend this chapter, this idea that, that we can't. Now, listen, that's not what he's concerned about. He's concerned about people who are fake, right? He's concerned about people who want to look more spiritual than they are. People who pretend to be something that's not a true condition of their heart. So we can, we can squash all this and just that the inside matches the outside. He said the outside is, is whitewashed tomb of the Pharisees and the inside is full of dead men's bones. And, and we don't want to be guilty of that. We don't want to wash the outside so much, but inside our heart, we're dealing with all kinds of bitterness and anger and, and we got to deal with the inside. And what he's going to say here in, in conclusion is he's going to say, woe to you, and then we're done. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you built the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we have lived in the days of our father, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witness against yourself that you are sons of those who murder the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you, I send you prophets, wise men, scribes. Some of them will, you will kill and crucify and some of them you, you will skirt scourge in whenever I'm trying to hurry, I can't read scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Um, last thing you guys, I want you to look at one thing and then you can close your Bible. In verse 34, it says, I send you and then, and I sent you prophets, and some of them you will kill. Okay, you can close your Bible, and then we'll just talk about this last thought. In that verse, Jesus said that he raised people up, and he sent them out. And, and what did the Pharisees and the scribes and this, this religious system do to these people that God, the prophets that God raised up and sent out? What did they do to them? They killed them. Okay, everybody say it. They killed them. Okay, so they killed them. First of all, I just want to point this out. That means that God called people and sent them out knowing what? They're going to get killed. So they were born to go and serve God by dying, right? Okay. Does that offend you? <laughs> so what, what about you? Maybe you're not offended, but maybe you say, well, I'm glad God didn't call me to go out and be murdered by the Pharisees. I got bad news for you today. <laughs> You've all been called to die. 
Every one of you. Jesus said, die to yourself, whether in the flesh or of yourself. Every one of us have been called to die. And, and you know, and, and whether it's in the flesh or in the spirit, the call of God is for us as believers to die to ourselves, to live for Christ, and allow Christ just to be, just to be in us and through us and for us to grow in Jesus. And every one of us called to die in lots of different ways. Amen? Amen. Amen. Love you guys. God bless you. Let's stand. Father God, we thank you, Lord, so much for this day, God. And Father, we give you blessing and honor, Lord. We, we love you, Jesus. We pray your super blessing upon this day, God, and Lord, upon everybody's life. And Lord, I, I know this message was, for me personally, difficult, God, to, to kind of walk out in a short time. And um, Lord, that, that we just want to take away from this, God, that we don't want to be guilty of, of the mistakes of the religious systems that you um, dealt with, God, that you deal with over and over and over and over, and you're not done because as we get into the letters of Paul, he spends chapter after chapter after chapter dealing with this same exact topic, that we don't want to be guilty of the sins of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. We don't want to be fake. We don't want to be pretentious. God, we do want to be a people who, when other people see us, they, they think that we're good Christians, Lord, but that's because it's really what's in our hearts, because we're in love with you, God. It's because we serve you and we know you. And, and God, that the world would see that. But when they see it, it's done in such a way that, God, you receive the glory in heaven. So, God, again, in our church, if there's any Phariseeism, legalism, Sadducee stuff going on in this church, Lord, forgive us. God, expose it. Help us to change. God, give us opportunity to repent and get it right. And, Lord, that we would be a church that wouldn't, wouldn't be sin sniffers and self-appointed Moses seat sitters but that we be a church, God, ready and waiting for your return. God, a church that loves supremely God and other people in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. Love you guys.